0: everyone, I'm Julie Gunlock, your host for the second episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. For those new to the program, this podcast is focused on how parents should custom tailor their parenting style to fit what's best for their families, themselves, and most importantly, their kids. I feel like this is especially important right now, right? When everything's so uncertain and everything's a little bit scary, Parents in general bring out the judginess in people. I mean, I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. I think there's a lot of scolding in the parenting world. Um, There's certainly absolute certainty um, from a lot of parents that there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. But that's on, I would say that's on steroids now with the COVID shutdowns. Um, There are parents who absolutely, for banging their hand against a desk, they absolutely believe their kids are in danger if they go to school in the fall and they want schools closed. I actually talked to a mom a couple of days ago who thinks schools should be closed until 2022. Of course, she's a stay-at-home mom and um, she is perfectly happy with staying home with her kids and having them do online courses. Uh, but there's an awful lot of people who certainly don't want that. Um, and, and again, you know, on the flip side, there's just as many parents who want their kids fully in school, um, receiving in-person instruction. There's also people who want, you know, hybrids, but what I find in a lot of these conversations with people is it isn't sort of, Hey, we need to do what's best for our kids. I see a lot of fighting about what is the best decision. And I think at this time, you know, we need to recognize that people have just have different opinions on this and that's okay. Um, and I think what parents want more than anything, though, is a decision. Um, I have brought this up. I brought this up on the first podcast how my school district is has still has not told parents what school is going to look like in the fall. It is it is August. It is the first week of August. And parents still do not know what school is going to look like. That has huge ramifications for people. It makes it very difficult for parents to plan. And it really, it look, it really anchors me. I'm very upset that my school district is dragging its feet, particularly when the surrounding school districts, much bigger school districts, have made decisions on this. Now, it's not perfect. For instance, uh, the the neighboring school district right next to me, they actually had to sort of uh, what et- I guess you'd say edit. They had they came out with a plan, and then they backed it up. They they said, okay, you know, we're gonna offer you get a choice of either you, know, you go to school two days a week or you do full online. Well, a couple weeks later, they came out and they said, okay, that's not gonna work, and now they're doing all online. You know, that's understandable. They you know, things changed. CDC came out with different guidance. They didn't feel comfortable doing that kind of hybrid model. And so they backed up, but at least they have been upfront about this. And at least they did at least try to give parents, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of time to plan, at least they announced earlier. But again, my school district continues to, uh, drag their feet. So we're going to talk a little bit today about that further with my guest. Uh, she's actually writing a book about the phenomenon of parenting, how parenting has changed, how it's become much more fraught and, you know, a little bit more judgmental, (laughs) um, and, uh, how people are just much more opinionated about parenting today. So I'll talk to her about her new book and, and we'll get in again, we'll get into the, the, the current parenting issues facing the country and the stress so many parents are facing with school closures. Um, But first, I thought it would be fun, and that's sort of the format of the show. We're going to kind of go over some of the headlines that I saw this week. And, um, you know, obviously this is the bespoke parenting hour where we talk about how you should do what's best for your kids But, and I, I said this on the first episode, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that are bad for kids or there aren't that, or that parents don't make bad decisions. They certainly do. I mean, you can't sort of, you know, abuse your child, you know, knock them on around and then say, well, that's just the kind of parenting philosophy that works for me. Uh, there are, there are some definite bad things that parents do and we, we, we shouldn't gloss over that. Um, You know, I've said, I've said this, I said this again in the first episode, you you know, you can't deny your children food, you can't deny your children medical attention. And there are cases where experts matter, particularly on developmental issues, on medical issues, on psychological issues. This is when parents should exhibit uh, a little humility and they should really talk to the doctors and the experts in the field to make sure their kids are okay. And I feel like in general, there are some sort of guidelines. Parents sort of recognize there are, you know, some things are just the right thing to do. One of those things, one of those sort of broad categories where I thought everyone agreed was keeping your kids away from pornography. Right. I thought that was like, you know, you you don't let your kids watch extremely graphic sex. I thought this was sort of generally accepted. (laughs) I was wrong. So last week, Allie Wentworth, she's a comedian. Um, she's been on some TV shows and some talk shows, um, but she's also known as the wife of um, of George Stephanopoulos. Um, so she was on a podcast and on that podcast, the, the report said on the podcast, she, she said she was open to watching pornography with her teenage daughters. So I read this and I say, yeah, my first reaction is, okay, there's no way she said that. I said, you know, because She seems like a reasonable person and she's very funny. She seems like a likable person. And so I was thinking, okay, this was, I bet that this was badly reported. I bet, and also I thought, okay, I bet she was joking. I thought I didn't, you know, I thought she's definitely joking about this. So I listened to what she said and she did say it. So what happened is she's on this podcast and it's being co-hosted by Deborah Messing (laughs) of the sitcom Will and Grace, right? And Deborah, this whole conversation was so bizarre. And honestly, I sometimes feel like I sometimes feel like I don't understand the world anymore because these women are talking. And they and Deborah Messing says, "How do you stop kids from looking at porn 24/7?" I'm like, okay, what? Like, what? Why are your kids watching porn 24/7? I mean, why is anyone watching porn 24/7? But like, are you serious? That you just you basically think you know your kids are watching porn 24 seven. And then Ali Wentworth responds, well, you certainly can't stop them. And that is just such a depressing comment to make. Right. And I'm not out to lunch. Look, I know that the statistics um, on, you know, how early and how often children see porn, you know, it's, it's bad. It's pretty gag inducing. In, in fact, um, lots of kids are seeing porn But it's interesting to me, this sort of parenting philosophy out there that says like, well, we just have to throw our arms up and accept it and give into it and then join them. So essentially what Wentworth is saying and what she said on this podcast was that she wants to watch it along with her daughters. Like at the same time, I can't imagine, can you imagine anything more awkward? I mean, honestly, sometimes we'll watch movies with my parents over the holidays. And if there's a kiss, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I'm like, eh, I want to, I want to get out of here. Right. Right. So she says she wants she says she'd want to watch it along with her daughters and explain what they were seeing and that it was a performance and it wasn't real. And she said she'd explain that these are actors, they're probably married and they have kids at home, and what they're doing is they're doing it to make money, right? So you can kind of see what she's saying here. She wants to explain she wants to do a good thing. She wants to explain that what they're seeing isn't normal or representative of normal sexual relations. But I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, does Ali know that you can have those conversations about porn and about the, the harmful effects of porn without actually watching porn? I mean, talk about mixed messages, right? So it's pretty easy to have a conversation with a kid right? And to tell a kid if they're aware aware of porn or even if they've seen it, like they could have gone to, you know, been with their friends and seen it. It's pretty easy to tell kids that porn isn't real and talk to them about how it objectivized people and that it falsely portrays sex and love. And it's, these are not real relationships. Um, and at the same time telling them it is very bad for them to see that sort of stuff on television, like, you know, on the screen. Um, I, you know, I I believe that I, I really try hard to limit my children's exposure to R-rated movies. I won't let them watch R-rated shows. I'm even cautious about PG 13. Um, I don't let them play video games that um that contain a lot of violence or bad language. So I mean, the answer isn't to play these video games and watch these movies with them while it's while explaining that it's bad. The the better thing to do is to explain why they're bad and then behave like an adult and be a good role model and don't play them or don't look at them. That that seems to me the far better philosophy. And again, I don't want to seem like a judgy mom, but I do think that exposing children to that extreme adult content at a young age, especially teenagers when they've got hormones and they're confused and it's a tough time for kids. I think introducing that kind of content is really, really harmful. So that wasn't it. (laughs) So building on this porn theme today, um, I, I saw this same kind of theme over at Slate's parenting advice column. Yes. I know everyone is probably like, well, it's Slate. Yes, it's Slate. So it's going to be crazy, but it was really interesting. This Advice column that I saw um, where a mom, so they do these, you know, it's this woman writes an advice column and and readers can write to her. Um, and so this one was signed by a mom who identified as liberal. She was like sincerely liberal, but maybe not that liberal. Okay, and apparently what made her liberal what makes her not that liberal is this. Okay, so she wrote in this in this letter. Before the era of COVID-19, my almost 17-year-old daughter was spending a lot of time with a set of male best friends, so two guys, okay, and they were best friends, and she says they all played sports together and saw each other socially, and then she says that one evening when she was on her way to the laundry room in the basement, she says, quote, I found all three of them flushed (laughs) and (laughs) rapidly disentangling on the rec room (laughs) couch, And she says, I didn't want to say anything to her afterwards because I felt very awkward. Understandable. Okay, so this is where it goes south. She says, now she has started to spend more time with one of these boys again. So far, no sign of the other. Then she says, I feel really uncomfortable and unsure if I need to do or say anything or what that should be. And then she goes on, our family values are quite progressive and queer friendly, but a potential romantic triad Or the aftermath of one seems like a lot for an adolescent to handle. Maybe I'm blowing. This is where, you know, this is where she, you know, her liberal mom, I'm a cool mom kind of kicks in. She says, maybe I'm blowing things out of proportion and whatever I saw was a one time thing. But even if it was, should I provide some guidance about ethics and sexual health with uh, managing multiple partners? So I read, read this and I just think, God, you know, someone took the time to write this out and write this to an advice calendar. And I don't even understand why you necessarily need this advice. I, I read these kinds of things and it always strikes me that people are making this parenting thing a little too hard. I, I, I don't sort of understand that kind of hand wringing. I think talking to your kids about this stuff is your job. That's sort of a fundamental part of parenting. And if you think something is potentially unhealthy, it's your most important job, right? I mean, this is this is where the fun starts or stops and where the hard part of parenting comes in. So, I I guess I also I feel like I have a lot of I do. I have a lot of pro, you know what they call progressive, I call libs. I call liberal friends, um, but they call themselves progressive. They love that word, but I do have a lot of progressive friends and I don't, I don't even think they would agree that just because you're progressive, you're, you think anything goes. There's an awful lot of progressive parents who would say, I'm not comfortable with this, or I think I need to talk to my kid if they're exhibiting some behaviors that I don't agree with. Um, But what was funny and what I wanted to get to was the response from the um, Slate advice columnist is what's really amusing about this. Um, She doesn't she didn't think it was just simply, hey, you should probably talk to your daughter. Right. And you should probably talk to her about having, you know, um, you know, about her. You know, basically your morals, too, about having multiple partners and being sexually promiscuous. And there, I, that is a word that, you know, people sort of shy away from. But sexual promiscuity is not good, is not good. And, and you should probably talk to your child about that. I don't expect to hear that from this late person, but I, I certainly didn't expect to hear this. So she starts off, um, her first comment, she goes off on a tangent talking about, of course, gender identity and pronouns. Okay, so that was the first thing. And then she calls this behavior that was described by this mom as a variation of, of gender identity, a variation of gender, of sexual, I'm sorry, a variation of sexual identity. Okay, so I know that there are about a billion sexual identities today and it's, but, you know, and that's sort of the, the cool thing to talk about, but this isn't about sexual identity. Um, This is about teenagers and potentially doing things that are Going to stress them out at the very least and harm them at worst. So then the column, but you know, again avoiding any com- commentary on that. Then the columnist writes, <laughs> "Multi-partnered romantic relationships among young people is becoming," she says, "it's becoming common." And then she adds that she's been seeing this for the last five or six years, and that the young people where she teaches, great, she's a teacher. Um, she says, "quote," casually mention their plural partners. And that it's happening among kids as young as high school. So she goes on and she's basically just trying to normalize this for this woman, but she doesn't answer the woman's question, which is, should I talk to her? And I, I find it really kind of irritating that the out, that the advice column columnist, you know, suggests that, well, it's common. You know, there's a lot of common things about kids. It doesn't mean it's good. You know, it's also common among kids, binge drinking, automobile accidents, okay? And many behaviors lead to to bad outcomes. And so it is just because it's that it's happening a lot. Maybe that's a commentary on our society and not a way to reassure people. I really think that this is kind of an important thing and I really hate to see sort of you know parents normalizing these kinds of behaviors or just even not talking to their kids about this stuff. Again, it seems like a pretty fundamental role role of parents and what, what I find kind of interesting, too, is that so often these articles, these sort of, oh, you know, kids being kids, right? Don't worry about it. What's the big deal? Articles appear at the very same time that you have articles sort of, you know, raising the alarm that there's this increase in depression and anxiety and suicide and uh, uh, and other unhealthy behaviors like cutting, Um and you know, like binge drinking and you know, just reckless behavior among kids. And again, not just that, but also the inability—just the striking inability of kids today to sort to of do normal things, like maintain eye contact. Or yeah, you know, it's very interesting. There's been a whole bunch of articles about kids in their first year of college who are just incapable of taking care of themselves. Like they never learn to do a load of laundry or scramble themselves an egg. Um, and so you you we've got some we've got a problem in this country with raising kids not to be adults but to be weak and nervous and anxiety ridden. and we're seeing it in the data, the increased of, the increasing numbers of kids with with psychological problems. Um, so you know I just I, I just wish that people would maybe, The puzzle pieces together that maybe unhealthy, reckless behavior and and frankly, reckless sexual behaviors like this might have have something to do with um, with kids who are who who seem to be suffering today. Um, the The last part of the advice that she gives this mom, which is, (laughs) is just hilarious. Is um, she does say she actually does say the times are a change in, which is 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 such a cliche um which you know there's no analysis of whether that change is good she just says it so you know get used to it right um and then she gives the woman a link to a, a teen vogue I'm not kidding you a teen vogue article um and then another link to a a polyamory website that is run by I I really wish that I could show you this guy's photo a guy, he looks like a middle-aged balding guy, but he's wearing bunny ears. So great, great resources there for that worried mom. Um, okay. So shifting away from, from porn, (laughs) uh, let's, let's go back to talking about school reopenings. It seems like a, a cleaner subject. Uh, so I, I mentioned earlier that my school district continues to drag its feet. Um, and, you know, this has been a real problem for, pa- for parents in my my area. I'm hearing a lot of chatter from parents, a lot of worries. You know, do I join a pod? Do I hire t- tutors? Well, if I hire tutors and then there's part-time school, do I let the tutor go? What do I do? You know, it's, it's brutal watching people sort of try to you know, navigate this really uncertain future. Um, and again, like I said, so many of these questions, they all hinge on what the school district decides. And this, again, is not just my school district. This is happening all over the country it feels a lot like being held hostage. It really does. And, you know, speaking of being held hostage, uh, the the teachers unions, uh, probably sensing the desperation um, on both the part of parents and school officials, they are now making demands. It's great timing for them. Um, Eric Boehm over at Reason, he wrote about that, uh, about that situation this week. He said that, The United Teachers of Los Angeles, this is a union that represents more than 35,000 teachers. It is the nation's second largest school district. Um, That union published a paper earlier this month calling for schools to remain closed until the district meets a list of demands. I mean, that's like a ransom note. That is a ransom note. Um, So I just want to play a little clip from... Fox, uh, I think it was on the five, Greg Gutfeld. Um, I think he frames this teacher union issue well. So we'll listen to that.
1: As America struggles with COVID, rising crime and riots, it's nice that the teachers unions are helping out. I kid. And their demands for reopening schools, the United Teachers of L.A., a union for public school teachers, has included, surprise, defunding the police and A shutdown of publicly funded, privately operated charter schools. Now, these go beyond what normal unions demand. Worse, they use this crisis to preserve their power by destroying those who won't conform. By trying to shut down charter schools, they're demanding the elimination of any competition and depriving desperate poor families of an education that might change their kids' lives. This speaks to the real truth of a big American problem. It's not systemic racism. It's our systemically corrupt education system. It's the teachers unions led by leftists whose only goal is to cancel competition that might reveal their incompetence.
0: So the union is demanding, Greg always puts it perfectly, but the union is demanding not only what some would consider some things, reasonable things uh, like personal protective gear, reconfiguring of classrooms, you know, wash up stations, you know, more hand gel in the classroom. These these things seem reasonable and obviously are for the good of the kids, but they're demanding a moratorium on new charter schools. That tells you a lot, right? In Los Angeles. So they want to kill the competition. And they also want things like Medicare for all, new wealth taxes in California. These demands are popping up outside of California, of course, as well. More than 10 teachers unions, including those in Boston, Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul have joined you know, with um, you know, groups like the Democratic Socialists of America to say that schools cannot continue in this crisis without the resources our students need and deserve. This has nothing to do with students. Medicare for all and and demanding Um, things like, oh, this is another one, you know, uh, defund the police, uh, getting all police officers or SROs out of the schools. Um, you know, this has nothing to do with kids. Um, they are not demanding more pencils or iPads, uh, other things. They want bans on evictions, a moratorium on charter schools, as I mentioned, an end to the voucher programs. Um, they want an abolition of standardized testing. Um, they want an end to, to rent until this is all over. Um, and they, of course, want a massive infusion of federal money. Um, so there's been some pushback here. Um, actually, Governor Ron DeSantis in this clip is actually talking about not necessarily the teachers unions, but really about why parents really deserve to be listened to. And I mean, I will just really quickly talk about um some of the polling out there of parents. Um, You know, there was a poll in my, in my school district and, and the vast majority of parents want there to be some in class, some in person um, education, education going on. Um, Another survey, there's a great article in the Hill about opening schools. That was today. Um, It said uh, a survey discovered that just one in three districts have been expect, have been expecting all teachers to deliver instruction, but 71% 71% of parents surveyed last May said that their children learned less with 29% saying a lot less after their school closed. Uh, many effluent families obviously will be um, figuring out ways to, you know, sub, to, to, to offer their kids some sort of tutoring or some other form of education. Um, and yet you have Teachers Union calling for alternatives to the public school system, um, which a lot of families are trapped in. They just don't have any other choice so this is really uh really pretty depressing but i just wanted to run that clip of uh of of the governor who who really i thought said it well about how parents demands and wishes need to be considered
1: what's clear to me is that i think parents want to have the ability to control their kid's destiny and uh, have a meaningful choice and so for me if parents believe that the distance learning is the way to go if they're not comfortable uh, in a face-to-face environment for their kid uh then i think they have that right
0: so i think uh the governor there you know really um really nails it look parents need to be listened to and they need to um have their voices heard um and early so that they can make the decisions that are best for their kids that's something i think a lot of sadly some school officials forget is that parents know their kids best and know what's best for their kids so um i thought that was a, a great quote and i'm glad to see that someone's pushing back on that um, so we'll talk a little bit more about this um, and her fabulous new book with my friend Nancy McDermott, who's joining us now. Hello, Nancy. Hi. How are you? I'm doing great. Nancy, uh, let me give let me give everyone an intro for you. Nancy is an independent writer and researcher and an affiliate of the Center for Parenting. Culture Studies at the University of Kent at Canterbury. She's a former chair of the advisory committee of the Park Slope Parents Online Community. Oh my gosh, I want to hear about that. And she has contributed (laughs) essays to the following collections, The Tyranny of Parenting Science, The New Face of Early Childhood in the United States, and The New Feminism and the Fear of of Free Speech. She um, is a hoot, and I can't tell you enough how much you're going to enjoy her new book which is called the problem with parenting how raising children is changing across america i read this over the last couple days it is a fascinating book i feel smarter this morning actually nancy (laughs) after reading your book so thank you so much for coming on with me today well uh, thank you for having me So, okay. So I want to, I, I definitely do want to talk about school openings and kind of get your perspective on things. And because I think it's it's really interesting to read your book about big be, be and, and, and while going through this COVID thing, because if anything, people certainly have their opinions on this. And it's, it's, is really interesting reading about how the changes of par- cha- the, you talk about the changes in parenting culture over the years. And, and, uh, and it, it struck me as very appropriate for this time. So, so I read your book and I loved it. And um, so uh, your, my, my first question is that you say, I mean, that sort of the the start of the book, you say that parenting has changed in America. Um, tell me about that change and when did that change start happening?
2: Right, well, <clears throat> um, I mean, a few people know that the word parenting didn't exist before 1970. Um, and uh, I think that, you uh, that- Parenting as um, as a way of raising children actually didn't exist before then either. Um, uh, you know what what happened in the 1970s was that you know, there were there was all this um, uh, uh, I guess social social upheaval in the 60s, uh, and then in the 70s uh, institutions began to change. So um, particularly marriage uh, marriages began to break down uh people began to divorce as a sort of way of expressing themselves or you know just trying to uh to to uh, as a way of personal growth and the upshot was that the family became too unstable to be um the institution through which children uh were socialized and raised and um and so what what ended up happening was that you had 50% of marriages <clears throat> that took place in 1970 broke up. Uh, and it made this uh, kind of quiet but profound impact on people because you could no longer um, uh, count on, uh, on a family being permanent. Um, and so uh, there, were pa- there were families who uh, split apart. Um, and parents were trying to figure out, well, you know, how do I raise my kids now uh, that you know we've divorced, and and um, uh, you know, what am I doing? Um, and uh, the um, and and so what happened was that all of these things that we'd taken for granted uh, in family life, uh, people became conscious of them because you know because they, they had to. Um, and so you get this growth in parenting classes. Uh, you, uh, parenting becomes, becomes an activity. Um, and uh, so people are looking at what they're doing with their kids in a new way. Um, and the way that they, the way that they, they do this is they, they take on the values um, that uh, dominated the 1960s, which I would call therapeutic values. Um so they are um uh trying to you know help their help their kids to be the best they can be. they're interested in their kids as individuals um and they begin to focus on their kids and so child rearing changes it's not it's no longer just a part of ordinary life it's an activity right. that
0: you do yeah 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 i i really it was so interesting reading of i i didn't know i didn't know that there was I, like you 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 opened up by saying that you know the word parenting wasn't used until the 1970s and one of the first parts of your book you talk about there is a difference between child rearing which is i guess how it was kind of considered you're rearing children and parenting and how parenting is much more about the parent or about the process really right
2: it well it is you know and it's it's uh, uh, it, it has to do with a, a kind of fundamental change um, in the way that people look at uh, look at their lives uh, and so parents are uh, parents are uh, I, I guess you could say they're they're much more aware of of their own. Uh, happiness, and they're kind of constantly act asking themselves, you know, am I fulfilled? Um, and looking at things in terms of one lifetime, um, and they look at their kids in the same way. And it's and because of that, um, it's very easy for parents to confuse uh, their own goals and aspirations, their own personal growth, with that of their kids. If that makes any sense. It-
0: it does. It's interesting. You talk about, and um, this—I think this was the '70s. You're you're referring to. You you quoted someone else talking about families craving complete privacy, a freedom to bring up their children without the interference of relatives and neighbors, to choose their friends on the basis of mutual interests instead of physical proximity. I, I have to say, I, it reminds me of my own childhood. My mom grew up um, around tons of cousins and aunts and uncles, you know, 12 aunts. Um, and everything was, a you know, it was a big family. Um, you know, uh, she might call it an ordeal. Every, every, <laughs> every holiday, every... And then, you know, she married my father. He was in the Navy. And then they, you know, just moved around a lot. And we were this little... For some, and we very rarely saw our family and it was so interesting reading this because that's actually what my parents did and they enjoyed the privacy they they wanted it they didn't really you know i don't want to <laughs> my mother will listen to this and kill me um it you know it wasn't it wasn't that they you know they hated their families but they actually i think they saw it so differently they saw their lives so differently from what they had grown up with my father grew up with less family around but still family Um, And so um, I saw a lot of this sort of in my own experience. And I will tell you that, you know, as a result, um, I was always fascinated by hearing my parents' stories about, you know, especially my mother growing up in this big Catholic French Canadian family up in New Hampshire and these huge family gatherings, which weren't at all a part of my childhood. Um, And it's interesting to see that, you know, to read your book and realize that that was pretty much that was a trend. That was a and now it's much more the reality, much more much more the norm of people moving away.
2: Um, it's because my experience is similar to yours because my father was in uh was in the army. Um and so we moved to like oh, 13 places in yeah. my first eighteen years. Yeah. Um, which would be familiar to you. And and um but you know, when I was younger, And we made an effort to get together with my cousins, Um, but they, there was a kind of diaspora because my family's from South Dakota. And there was this view, uh, which I think was very prevalent in the 1950s, which you can find if you read uh, Robert Putnam's book, uh, Our Kids, which was that if you were going to get on in the world, if you were going to be anybody, you didn't stay in the place that you were from, you know, you went off and you made your way in the world. Um, and so, you know, I and I can remember, you know, I thought this for a long time, and I can remember saying, oh, why would you want to stay in your own town?
0: I felt that way too.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, uh, and, uh, uh, but, but, it, but it's interesting because it's like, uh, around the, around the 1980s, you know, when, which when I went away to college, it was like all the effort that we had made. To see my cousins and spend time uh, with them just kind of fell to the wayside, yeah. Um, yeah. and I thought that was just us. And you know, Christina, you're young and you're fabulous and you're into right. your own stuff, so you don't notice it. But in retrospect, um, and you know, in having read more about it, I think that was a fairly common experience. And in fact, in David Brooks talks about it in his recent article in the Atlantic about the nuclear family. About yes. how you know we did have these kind of we did have these bonds, and then they just kind of break apart because um, because we um, have decided that uh, that this is like a that that the the obligations of the family um, are not something that we want to have anything to do with because I mean it's so interesting when you you know when you listen to the way that people talk about family particularly like extended family it's like oh people I want a chosen family I want a family on my own terms I want a family that will you know will, will be like my friends will always make me feel good and you know and they they won't be um they won't be backward and they won't have attitudes okay. that I disagree with um, and that's you know I, I've, I've over time I've begun to think that you know that aspect of obligation of not having things on your own terms of having to deal with people. Who you may not um, you may not agree with, but you love them anyway. Yeah. Maybe that's the best thing about
0: family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly isn't. And 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 particularly in today's I think climate, where where you know friends don't necessarily have to love you, even though you believe differently from them. You know, I think you know people we I, I think we see this more than ever where you know. People's, for instance, political beliefs might alienate them um, from other people. But that's not true with family. I, look, I'm not saying that families aren't experiencing tension because of the political climate, but in general, you could at least rely on people and you could have differences of opinions, but they're still family that's sort of held. Um, so that's even more important today um, and yet more rare. Um, so what do you think is the what do you think? family is today what do you think it is is what's the meaning of family today well um you know there's a really interesting book
2: um which is called uh, uh counted out um which is about um it's a it's a longitudinal it's based on longitudinal research of how people define family um and the researchers were interested in um whether same-sex families would um, eventually be accepted. Um, but it's so interesting to look at their research because um, you, f- you can find all of these other things in the research. So for example, um, there, they divide the way that people think of families into three groups. There were uh, the people in the oldest cohort who would be like our, maybe our parents and grandparents, um, and for them, a family is based on a marriage. It's a it's a legally recognized commitment, um, and uh, and there are kids, and they're not necessarily against divorce, but they don't think it's a good idea. Um, and then there are people who are around my age. I'm I've got I've got one leg of one. I was born on the cusp of the baby boomers and Gen X, and for them. Um, a marriage or a a family is about commitment. So you don't have to necessarily be married, but you have to be committed to another person. You have to stick with them. And children are very much kind of identified with that because uh, children are that commitment personified. Um, But when you get to the youngest cohort of people, a family is, it's basically, um, it's basically about, um a group that of people who feel like a family it's based on yeah. it's based on uh it's like there's a there's a quote I use in the book where where um, this uh young guy says, well if it feels like a family then it's a family and so <laughs> you know you can get there was a really interesting um uh photography exhibition at the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, which came out while I was writing the book, which was called Unexpected Families. And in that, um, they have all of these pictures um, of uh, uh, portraits of families, and some of them are traditional families, some of them are same-sex families, some of them are military units, and some of them are are uh, you know uh Facebook friends and they're like, This is a family because it feels like a family. You know, I, I get I, I have all these terrible emails from uh, from uh, you know, I'm, uh, corporations welcoming to me to the family. <laughs> right, right, you know, right. And right. and it's like and, and so the so the family has become um just about feelings um and not really about commitment. That's right, um, and I think that's very, very hard for kids because
0: well, it is. You know, and, we... and I mean, the outcomes show it. I mean, I, you know, there's just an incredible body of work showing, you know, the effect of, you know, for instance, fatherless families, or yeah, you know, um, you know, divor- The effect of divorce on kids. I mean, there is. It's it's hard to argue that, and yet there's this. It's uncomfortable, right? People feel uncomfortable making any suggestion that anything but a traditional family. And it doesn't have, you know, I don't want to say traditional like mom, dad, you know, but look, when marriages break up and there's kids involved, there are some really serious, you know, um, uh, there's a really serious effects for kids. Um, and yet people feel uncomfortable, but I, it's interesting how when you expand the word family to mean so many things, um, it, it, it makes people uncomfortable criticizing anything when it, when it when it has to do with the family,
2: yeah, and and I mean, w- this is something that I've been thinking a lot about recently. Is I just think that we are way, way, way too focused on family structure, and we aren't focused on the content of family, which um, which I think, um, uh, if we're going to if we're going to uh, look forward to a way of raising kids that, you know, is is a good way to raise kids. Um, I think, I think we need to, I think that we need to, to, to stop worrying about, you know, is this a nuclear family? Is it a same-sex family? Did this family divorce? I think what we have to ask, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is this a child centered family? Is this a family that, uh, that exist to create a protected environment for kids to grow up in um and if the answer to that is no then i don't well, think that's a i don't think that's a good thing so
0: so so in your in your so from your point of view or what are just so i understand like you're saying i mean and this this makes total sense to me that you're saying okay the kit the when I say there are bad outcomes there are many, in many cases, the children of divorce and divorced families, you know, they, they, they suffer, you know, they, whatever, they get back grades, they have discipline problems in the classroom. They, you know, are more likely to try drugs, you know, or do, you know, ex- express reckless behaviors. Um, you know, what you're saying is, but if that, if those divorced parents, are unified and doing things that are good for the kid and doing and and making sure the kid feels secure and knows his parents love each other and respect each other enough to get along you know that is that what you're saying that it has that that kids it, you know, when i throw out that that you know that, that that data about you know the offspring of divorced parents having a hard time is your point well you know if the kids are supported that that's not necessarily true well um I
2: think I think that uh I I think that that family I mean kids can can thrive um in an environment where they're allowed to be kids and it's I you know I would never want to suggest that um you know that that divorce is something that people can't overcome
0: I mean it is really tough for kids yeah um because they're you know they're not just like My husband, my husband is the product of divorce and my, um, you know, and, and I know dozens of people who are, and they, they are all function, highly functioning individuals. And so I'm not, I'm not saying there's a, you know, I'm not making these blanket statements, but I am saying, you know, there is data out there showing that the breakup of the family is very hard on kids. And so, but your your point about it being child centered is that. I mean, I don't want to say, but like if it's a friendly divorce, and otherwise, if in other words, if these parents can put aside their own hostilities to really focus on the child, I that's I'm just trying to understand child centric well, Okay, well, uh,
2: put it put it another way. I mean, I think that the, the bigger problem from my point of view is less divorce um, than the fact that people don't marry in the first place. Yeah, um, I mean. Yeah, that's So, so, you know, so like 40% of working class white uh, kids now are born in, um, are are born out of wedlock. Now what, what that, what that, what that seems to be evolving into is uh, this pattern um, of family formation where, uh, you know, uh, a couple will cohabitate very quickly. Um, They'll have a child um, they don't marry because they um, you know it quickly, and this yeah. is not the person that they necessarily want to spend their lives right. with. Right. Um, and uh, and then you know and then what seems to happen, which is encouraging, encouraging, is that for a certain a certain uh, cohort of people, is they basically grow up and then <laughs> they go off and they start a new family. Um, with someone and they're, you know, more responsible and the, and the kids in that family do okay. Um, but then there are people, um, like, um, uh, like J.D. Vance's mother. Um, that's a, that's an example I use from Hillbillyology who oh, just yeah. kind of, um, have these serial, serial relationships yes. where these, um, individuals come into kids' lives and they can't count on them being permanent. And then they go and there's, and, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's just, it is really interesting when you look at the meaning of marriage for people and you look at the
0: meaning of family, that it's not about kids anymore. I wanted to also get into um, some of the stuff you talk about with, um, you know, sort of the, I would say the judging, judginess that goes along with motherhood or, Parenthood, I really should say, about breastfeeding, about um, the demands on mothers. You know, breastfeeding is very hard. Being a parent is very hard. Some of the decisions. Tell me about, like, this might also be a good time to talk about the Park Slope parents, uh, the group that you were a part of. Um, uh, I assume that being, a, being on that, um, that, what was it? Was it a, a parenting board, a, a listserv of some well, kind? Well, um,
2: Parks of parents um was a listserv. Um right. it started out as a Yahoo group and now it's uh, it's on a different platform. But but it, it 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 was it just mushroomed because, you know, we uh, it was set up during this mini baby boom and you know suddenly we had uh we had like 13,000 members <laughs> um, yeah. and you know just in the the neighborhood of of Park Slope and it was a you know it became a place where people could kind of come and you know and say this happened and what do you think and you know and and uh how do how do you get to Manhattan if you have a stroller and just
0: you know all sorts of stuff well wait, um, can we back can we back up a little bit because I think one thing that's really important sure. and I know I know what Park Slope Sort of it, where it is and what it is. But there's also like, like Park Slope is very famous for being this very Tony, wealthy enclave. It's Brooklyn, right? Yeah, yeah. So so just give us a little, just give the listeners, because I wouldn't have known. I think I actually became aware of Park Slope when I met you and when I became aware of your work. And so tell listeners a little bit about Park Slope. Right. Well, well, Park Slope um, uh, became
2: popular uh, because, uh, it, well, first of all, it, it's 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 just across the bridge from Manhattan. Um, at the uh, you know in the beginning, um, before it became very expensive, it was a place where you could have the best part of city life, um, you know, being close to the city, but you could also raise kids because the spaces were a little bit larger you were next to to um, Prospect Park, you know, they had a few, a few reasonable schools. And so, um, so if you, if you think about like all of the people who have kind of made it in New York and now want to have kids um, or are trying to make it in New York. Right. And these are, these are people like, you know, there was a, one of the classmates of my son's uh, kindergarten, one uh, in a, one a, a golden globe. <laughs> For oh my God. You know, I mean, so these are, you know, it's like you can't, you can't throw a rock without, you know, hitting a novelist or an right, actor right. or an actress or, so, so it, it these very, these are very much um, the, the, the Five of kind of. Yeah, I mean they're they're very you know very smart people,
0: very talented people, and these are their yeah, kids. these are the and, people who th- these are the people who like you know they buy all organic. They you know they make a smoothie in the morning. They drink their kombucha. You know, yeah, they they attend baby yoga classes. Yeah, <laughs>
1: but that's kind yeah, of why. Yeah, so. But that's
0: but that's but it's kind of like park but Park Slope, the word like Park Slope parent. I'm sorry I interrupted you because I know you, we're not finished talking But okay. it. But Park Slope Parents, is, has, it's almost like, it's almost become synonymous with like the, and I don't I don't know, maybe I, I don't mean to be rude, but like this sort of out of touch, like, you know, head in the clouds, rich parent who doesn't have any clue like what normal people deal with. Is that right? Well, you know, there's always a kernel of truth. <laughs> uh, but, but at the same
2: time, you know, at the t- at the same time, the thing that are, that I found kind of overwhelming about Park Slope is just how kind and generous and uh, and really well-meaning people were. Yeah, and uh, and you know what would happen? And this, this this is one thing that kind of I guess has always bothered me is that something would be picked up from the list, like like there was a woman who um, was saying, "Oh." I just wish the ice cream man wouldn't come after school because then I constantly have to fight with my daughter about, you know, having an <laughs> ice cream. So so this was picked up. It's like, oh I remember I this article. Parents. Yes, yeah. You know, they're you know, they're they're such killjoys. I want no ice cream and you know, <laughs> it it just was not, you know, it wasn't fair. I mean, you know, people are just doing the best they can. But yeah. the thing was is that it was kind of like um ground zero for for this new culture of parenting, because because you know these are the best and the brightest in some ways, and so you know you've you've you've
0: got your Oscar now. You're gonna do the same with parenting. Well, yeah, um, you, you know, know, with your th- kids. Well, you talked about in your book. You uh, one thing I I thought was so interesting. You talked about the um you know the the end of the male breadwinner. Um, and and it was interesting. You cited a 1989 poll, which two thirds of men and women said that children would do better if fathers had a job and and mothers stayed at home. Um, they also agreed that their children would do just as well if both parents worked. Their answers, though confusing and contradictory, showed that the real struggle was not between men and women, but between children and work. Um, and it's it's funny because uh, I I think that's very true in my neighborhood too. And look, you know. I, I, it's not just, just the park slope and and here, but, um, you know, it's this idea of a lot of moms had children a little bit later, you know, and in those earlier years, they were building a career and, you know, then they left and now they're the heads of the PTA and they're signing their kid up for everything, you know, Latin at three and, you know, pottery at, for you know, and they're just, they're the real type A go-getter moms. Um, so I think that's another thing. I, I talked to my mom about this, the competitive, not, you know, there, I think there is a lot of competitiveness in parenting, but um, not necessarily meanness, but just, just this need to get your child in everything and do everything. Um, and, you know, I think that's true that we've had like I think in the seventies and eighties, women were going into the workforce, but now I think a lot of women are actually choosing to stay home or at least work mm-hmm. part time. Is that something you're finding too? And, and, and that adds to this sort of type A-ness, this sort of, like you said, I've got my Oscar. Now I'm going to like, I'm going to put the same vigor into raising these kids. Well, I mean, this is what
2: happens when raising kids becomes, becomes um, an activity instead of just a normal part of life. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, uh, uh, kids become like these projects, um, that, you know, parents in a very well-meaning way, you know, they, they, we know so much, you know, we think it we, it, it's like, imagine this baby is born and everybody, it's parents are kind of staring at it and, and looking for the next milestone and saying, you know, well, and thinking, well, you know, I want my child to be empathetic or my, my child to be, um uh uh, adventurous or whatever and and kind of we've 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 got this mindset where we we curate our kids lives um to try and get particular outcomes um and we become sometimes over-identified with that because you know it's part of it's part of our identity too which is why which is where this competitive parenting comes in is that um is that parenting almost becomes a lifestyle and then that lifestyle gets, um, gets uh, politicized. And so, you know, I talk about attachment parenting, which is the most extreme example of this, where, you know, uh, raising kids really, it changes, transforms every part of your life. You know, what you eat, what you, you know, you wear the baby, you sleep in the, in the, in the family bed. and the thing is, is that the way I feel about it, it's like, if people want to do that and that works for them, yeah. that's great. Right. You know, they right. should just do what works for them. But the problem is, is that because um, our uh, child rearing is so politicized and, and has become like a kind of extension of people's identities, whenever they encounter someone who's doing something different, right? It, it's, it's almost provoking. Um, and yeah. so this is this, like, you know, there, this is, there's a perception that you're being judged. Um, yeah. And then you're also judging yourself. And and actually I've got a problem with judging. You know, if we, I'm human, therefore I judge, but do I treat people differently? That's when it's a problem. You know, we all have our opinions about, you know, how we would raise our kids. Um, but I, I think the, the important thing is for adults to give one another, or parents to give one another, the benefit of the doubt, yeah. and to back up their fellow parents, and to like, you know, get over, get over, you know, how I'm doing it, um, yeah. get over the the technique, and 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 really think about, you know, how we can we can
0: support all of our kids together as adults. Yeah, I you know I I often say, and I said in the intro of this this podcast. And I say, I said it during the first podcast that I agree with you. I really think that, you know, if if parents choose a particular way to, to parent their children, you know, we all need to, you know, support them. Um, But, but I do, there are limits, you know. For instance, on medical or developmental issues, you know what I worry about sometimes, and especially on this podcast, you know, because I say you should tailor make your parenting philosophy to your child and to you. It's what it's what's there's no family that's alike. We are all different, and you know, I have a really hard time with messes and disorganization. Other parents don't. So why would be why would we both try to do the same parenting philosophy? And so, but the problem is, is that um, you know, there are certain things I don't want to in any way feed that idea that on medical issues or, or developmental issues that you shouldn't, you should reject this, you know, I don't want to be an anti-expert person who says, oh, no, you know, yes, you're the, you, you're the best expert on your kids. But that doesn't mean that there isn't good advice out there and good, um, you know, and, and good guidance. But I do agree with you that on very small things, like whether to let your kid ride his bike, up to the school by himself or take a walk by himself or, you know, when to start potty training. It's amazing the opinions people have. And, and, and sometimes that can really be translated into some harsh judgment. It makes it really hard. I think it makes parenting really hard. And, you know, I, I feel like, um, you know, I, I just, I feel like people need to be, parents need to be a little bit nicer to each other, um, and, and, you know, recognize and appreciate those differences. Because I think one of the problems is, too, is that you said, you know, we need to support each other. But I think when we don't and when people feel judged, they start to doubt their own instincts. And I'd like to, th- to ask you a little bit about that. You know, you we talk about parent, it, child rearing in the 50s, where, you know, you just got on with it, right? You just did it, right? And now I feel like there's an awful lot of parents that sort of feel like their judgment or their instincts aren't good as parent as it's become more parenting right and it's more wrapped up in the parent themselves you know how how do you feel about you know sort of you know your guide maybe being your own mom or how you were raised that's is that do people sort of rely on that or are they just more concerned about how they look and how others are judging them or maybe how if they're ascribing to a certain parenting you know, a popular parenting philosophy.
2: Well, I mean, I, I mean, from my point of view, I think the whole idea of having a
0: parenting philosophy
2: is just kind of weird. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like it's like I have a I have a husbanding philosophy or a <laughs> wifeing philosophy, um, and you know, it, it's it's like we did this did not exist before, right? Um, uh, and uh and I I I think that um it's tough because because we because we see parenting as an activity and actually society sees it as an activity too and holds can parents in contempt. You know, I mean it's yeah. just like like you know just the the sort of you know contempt for for parents. Um I uh, I uh, as you know, well, they're you know they shouldn't do that. They they you know they're 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 raising, you know, kids who are uh, who are uh, uh, they all have mental illness and and you know there is definitely a problem with socialization, um, which does has resulted in a less resilient yes um, yes uh, uh, generation. But this is not what this is not about what parents are doing per se. It's about the fact that we are entrusting the socialization of a whole generation of people that used to be done as a collective, cooperative task between adults. um, To uh, we've reduced that to uh, the parent-child relationship. So it suddenly becomes about you know whether you said good job or good girl or um, you know or, or what was the bedtime that you had for them and. And, uh, and I, I, I think that, I think that, um, uh, parents, there are certain things about raising kids, um, and about the way that adults and kids relate to one another, which have evolved over thousands of years. Yeah. Um, and we are perfectly capable, um, most people of being able to figure this out over time um, without having a philosophy or, you know, with, with, with just having, you know, the ordinary kind of moral beliefs and things that, you know, that make us um, individuals. Um, And, and, and we're, we're able to pretty seamlessly um, uh, incorporate that into our lives, raising children. Um, so, I mean, what I would like to see, which i don 't um, I, hope, I hope this is making sense but but sure. I think that uh, I think that instead of instead of focusing on you know what kind of uh, parenting philosophy is best for kids, necessarily, I think what we have to think about is how do we create a protected environment, a family where um Kids have the space to be kids, to develop naturally, uh, you know, it, through play and through, you know, experiences with other people um, that, um, uh, that provides them with the stability to go out into the world and to come back and to have a place to kind of reflect um, and to be protected. Um, but also an environment where adults can get on with doing adult things, too. You know, because the family plan is a function for adults, um, well, I, so it shouldn't be this this place where it shouldn't be this this environment where the parents do things
0: to the kids to develop them. So I want to ask. This is I, I feel like I'm, I could go on for hours with you. Um, and my producer is probably ready to, um, cut us off here. But um, but I, I feel. It's I, I'm I'm curious your opinion on. The role of the state and, in and, and how it is, cre- how it might be creating these sort of, or creating barriers rather to the, this, this creating family security for children that are, from what I'm hearing you say, you know, sort of not necessarily a traditional family, but like a unit of people who care about them or looking out for them. And it sounds to me like you're talking about, you know, like it, it, when my kids ride their neighborhood around town, like what, let's say something happened, they could go to a variety of houses to feel safe, right? They know the neighbors. We know our mm-hmm. neighbors. They're familiar with the na- with the neighborhood. They know where the fire station is. They know where, you know, they 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 know where to go if something happens. Um, and I'm interested, you know, in this kind of a good segue into the school closures because. You look at what schools provide today, right? They provide almost every meal. Um, so you can drop your kid off at 7 a.m. in the morning, at least in my school. Most, most public schools are like this. You can drop them off at 7 a.m. And so the school will watch them before school starts, but it'll also give them breakfast. And then you have enormously, like, you know, really sophisticated wellness center centers and some, some larger, like, high schools. Um, and, and I, I meant to say there's also aftercare, you know, and there's, you know, three meals a day served at the schools and it, schools have become this really important part of communities, right? And I don't, I don't want to, I don't, you and I don't have to talk about whether that's good or bad or the merits of that, but how does that affect? So how does, and again, it's, it's more than what I've said. There's so many other services, um, you know, after school programs and, you know, um, I might my, my child they they have flower arranging uh, at my school you know karate like every every possible you know, we're practically park slope right <laughs> every possible <laughs> way to enrich your child's um your child's experience at school they offer and um and so I'm just wondering about your opinion on that and it as as public schools have become you know the centers of really services and also just helping parents parent. How has that affected the creation of these, you know, like more organic things where, you know, maybe a neighbor would watch your kid. And I don't mean to simplify this because that's not always easy either. But, um, you know, do you think that people just rely, rely less on their neighbors or don't try to become friends with their neighbors or close to their neighbors or, Get involved in other community, ask you know community groups um, or maybe their church because they've got the school kind of taking care of everything. Well, that's possible. I
2: mean, I I think that you know the 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 role of the state is a big question, um, and the um, the the thing that you're talking about in the schools I think comes out of this thing called the community school movement, which was. Um, kind of a way of, well, kids are in the school anyway, so let's provide social services through the schools. But um, I think that um, you have to be really careful with that because it can undermine parents' authority. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and also, you know, it becomes less about education and more about social engineering. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and the problem I see is that I just feel like there's this gulf between parents and the school. So um, so you know, I got this um, I got this awful contract home with my kids. Um, well, I was supposed to sign I was supposed to sign the contract to say that I would you know, I would look over their homework and I would provide a place for them oh, to do their schoolwork. Yes, yes. So I got really angry And, Me too. and I, I, I wrote back and I said, "Look, I would not tell you how to run your classroom." <laughs> I don't appreciate you telling me how to run my home, and it, you know, and what do you, you
0: know? And of course, then they were like, "Oh God, we're so sorry." You know, and they're probably like, "Oh, we I'm, got, we got, we got a live one. We got a libertarian on our hands here." Well, well, <laughs> but, you know, but the thing is, is that it's like, it's like, it's not even, it's not, it's just the
2: contempt for parents. No, that, yeah, um, exactly, yeah, 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 and and uh, you know, and there's this sort of, you know, uh, they see parents as you know, as a problem. And sometimes parents can be a problem, you know, it's yeah, like sure. you're trying to teach their kid and the parents come in and insist that you make the grade higher. And so schools and parents are, or I should say even schools and teachers are not working together. They're, they don't see one another as allies. And I think sometimes the schools have different agendas. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't think that's how it should be, but I yeah. do think that there's potential for it to be different. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm such a fan of um, Lenora Skinny's organization, Let Grow, yeah. you know, where um, they're dealing with a real problem, which is, I think, one of the reasons why people don't necessarily organize things with their their uh neighbors or let their kids roam roam the the, the streets together in kid gangs, um uh, like we, we did growing up, is that is that we have a much less child centered society now. And so yeah. it's not necessarily safe to do that. Um but, well, you know, and well I, it's, I not, also, it's probably not as scary as it, it's probably not as dangerous as people think it is, but no, there no. is this thing where you know, it's like, why are you letting your kid in my yard when that used to just yeah. be the sort of normal thing that, that people yeah. did and you just accepted it, you right. know, whether you had kids or not. Right. Um, and um, so, but I, I think that there, you know, there could be a space where uh, teachers and schools and parents work together. But now, you know, the, 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 the parents are kind of, you know, they're these people who you just impose things on. Um, yes, because cool. you have to meet your target.
0: I think, um, I think, you know, I think also there's this problem too. I think teachers have a really um, hard time with the discipline issue in, in the classroom. If the discipline is not echoed or the need for discipline isn't echoed in the home, I mean, there are some really depressing studies out there uh, showing the number of assaults that are happening in schools. I mean, there there was this US Department of Education. I think it was the I think it, Department of Justice and Department of Education had did this study and it's like 10% of public school teachers ha- reported being threatened. I mean, that's a lot. And then there was something like 6% that were that had actually been physically attacked at a school. Um, and, and, and then there's the, the number that don't report that just don't report it and deal with it every day. My own son, um, would come home and he would tell me the horrible things he would see in his school where a student would immediately threaten a teacher. If she said, please be quiet and sit in your seat. Um, and, you know, my son, my son is, you know, he's very dutiful and he didn't, he couldn't believe the, you know, the sort of smack talk he was seeing. And so um, I think there, that also, you know, just from the teacher's perspective is they're often very, and I think this is an increasing problem um, in, in schools and largely in public schools where teachers are feeling threatened and then they don't get the support of parents. And they also just don't get, parents who are instilling discipline and respect in the household. And so when we wonder why, you know, there's a dismissal of some parents, at, you know, at this level, um, it's, I, you know, I think part of that is probably because they deal with a lot of crap in the classroom. And and listen, I am a big advocate of teachers listening and school administrators listening to parents and giving parents. I mentioned that earlier before you came on about how, when it comes to school reopenings, but I think this is a really complex issue, probably. <laughs> probably an issue for another podcast, but, um, but I'm glad you touched on it. I just think that teachers probably see, uh, you know, sort of an experience, sort of a lot of, a lot of things, um, when it comes to, uh, you know, how families behave and how they discipline their kids more than sort of the average. Well, per- it's interesting because it's like, it's like, in some ways it's the same
2: problem, Um, but it just manifests itself in different situations all the way through society, which is that, um, which is that adults are no longer being adults. They're afraid to wield their kind of natural adult authority. So you see that in the family where, you know, um, uh, uh, you hold back on, on any negative interactions with your kid because you're afraid that, you know, it's going to scar them for life or whatever it is whatever reason that you don't do it it's because you don't feel that you have the authority to do it um well and it's just really important that um that uh, adults back one another up um parents teachers um the the um administration in the school because we need to show kids how to behave we need to educate them and we cannot do that if we have no
0: authority well, I talked about, and I want to just quickly pivot to, um, and we we have to wrap up, but I I want to quickly pivot to reopening. No, no. Keep I, <laughs> I know I want to. Well, actually, I have a list of questions I haven't even gotten to, and I hope that I focused enough on your book because it really is interesting. It's just hard not to get off on a tangent because you're, because I like talking to you anyway, so it's like talking to a friend. But um, <laughs> but I will say, just to, it's funny on the reopening school reopenings. You know, obviously much of this is going to have to be done online now, and I wrote an article in the Bring about my own children's experience with the online learning, which was horrible, horrible. They've all been doing some intense tutoring this this summer because, and I'm not like it's not like they're slaves; they're like handcuffed to the table or anything. But they've had to do some catch up because they really had. And it's it's funny because there was a this school offered a summer school, which of course was all computer based, right? And so I told them no, and I swear I channeled you because in the sheet where I had to opt them out, the course online where I had to opt them out. It actually said, why are you opting your child out of summer school? And I wrote in the the comment section, I wrote, it's none of your business. And it isn't, I I can, you know, you gave me the opt out and I'm going to opt out and now you don't need to know anything else. So I kind of found that intrusive as well, but I will tell you, you know, so this, we're looking at an online, pretty much most school districts are going online, at least for the first, you know, or the first couple semesters—I don't know if it's quarters or semesters or however it's measured—but um, but you know that is that is a very difficult thing for my kids. And I—I I know you have two boys; they're a little bit older, so I don't know what the circumstances are in your community. Um, are are your have your has your school announced what the plans are?
2: Um, they did last night, but i I was excluded from the zoom because I was five minutes late, <laughs> so no. i don't know what they are oh no. <laughs> i i mean i think i think they're intending to, they're intending to open I'm not sure how that's gonna work um yeah. but um i mean i i i think that you know just just if we really if we care about if we care about the next generation um we can't just accept uh leaving kids at home. Yeah. Um, no, I Kids yeah. need other kids. Um, and, you know, and, 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 but it's interesting that the whole, you know, online learning thing is, is very interesting because, um, you know, my kids, and I think it's because my husband and I both work at home and we have a routine and it's like, well, uh, so they just, you know, they had their routine and they did their stuff. And, yeah. um, and I was, I was kind of shocked that it, you know, that they did that, but I had other, I have other friends whose kids just, you know, they just, uh, you know, they're, they're up at one o'clock at night and, you know, and they're behind in some things. And then, then the teacher is like saying, oh, you know, Johnny's behind or, but what was really interesting was that, was that they sort of over time figured out how to do it. and. Uh, so I was, I was surprised that, you know, some of the kids who we thought, you know, friends, kids who we thought this is never going to work, they just kind of squeaked by and they kind of worked, figured out for themselves how they would make this work. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily, you know, going to just be terrible, but I don't think it's ideal and I don't think we should accept it. I think we have to do whatever is necessary to get yeah. kids into classrooms because it's not just about the academics it's about the people it's about you know learning to learning to be young adults and you just can't do that in isolation
0: well and i mentioned we you know we had that small talk about the the state i mean you've got a situation now where a lot of people use the time that their children are at school to work and they might have you know um you know uh they might work half days they might work you know uh just, you know, part time, but they do work and they use that, the fact that their children are out of the school. So we can't, it's funny because a lot of teachers are insulted by essentially being called, um, uh, babysitters, but they're that school, the time my kids are in school is not all used for education. It simply isn't, you know, there's lunch, there's recess, there's switching classes. There's a number of things that are not necessarily purely educational. And so, um, so the the public school system and and frankly private school systems too are now set up to really provide parents a lot of that assistance. So you know, the public schools are set up to uh, to, to essentially provide parents with a lot of assistance um, in terms of child care. And so now we have a s- situation where you know it's really gonna be difficult for parents. I really don't know how. I mean, you and I, you know I have minor ten to thirteen, right? and 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 I know yours can certainly take care of themselves to some degree. But I really don't know what people do with much younger children. I really, you know, I think that this is going to be um, really difficult for them. And again, it's, you know, just the setup of, you know, it's how, how things are set up now, right? The public schools just take kids for a long portion of the day, and a lot of people are able to work because of that. Um, so it's going to be really tough. Um, I, I think... You know, I I think we need to 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 wrap up here, but I want to give you sort of a last word about your book and tell people where they can find it and uh, and and all that good stuff. Well, um,
2: uh, I you can find it on Amazon.com or you can find it at Barnes and Noble. Um, It's published by Prager Publishing, um, and uh, I hope I hope that. I hope that people will read it and I hope it reassures them, um, that, uh, to just be a little more relaxed about trusting their instincts. And also to know that, um, the parenting of culture that we have is not inevitable. It's not natural. And that, you know, we can make a difference. You know, we, we can, um, who, who else, who else, um, cares as much about, the future of society as parents, because you know we're raising the people who are going to live it. So, so I, I don't know. I hope I hope that that um, it'll help people to make sense of their experience and maybe inspire them to uh, to try and uh, make things make things a bit better.
0: Nancy, I really enjoyed the book, and I will tell you. I mean, I learned a lot from it. I didn't really know that parenting was a relatively new term. I didn't um, sort of uh, know many of the the facts it's very data uh, it's it's a really really great read in terms of it's interesting it reads quickly but it's really data packed so I think people who are interested in the issue of parenting should take a look at this um, and we will certainly include the link um, on iwf.org um, there's always a blog that goes along with these podcasts and I will include all of the um, information on, on so that so, so that people can buy your book, Nancy. Thank you so much. And good luck with the sales. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it. I think the way I want to end this podcast each week is uh, to give people a little bit of a historical reference. Um, I think one of the problems it, today is that people forget or don't know. I mean, it's not a matter of forgetting. I wasn't around in 1900. I wasn't around in 1700. I don't – it's not like I have a memory of those things and I've just forgotten. People genuinely do not know how hard life was as as early as 100 years ago. And so I – the last episode, the first episode of Bespoke – I, at the, at the end, I mentioned, you know, sort of child welfare laws and how children fared during the great depression. They have been through, you know, the Spanish flu was a worldwide pandemic that took millions of lives. Um, and I was trying to just remind people that look, you know, we've suffered through things before the American people have suffered through things before, and we will get through this again as we did the last time. So, um, I, I think that's kind of a, a good way to end this podcast a sort of reminder um, to people uh, of that that things ha- have been bad before and that things are progressively getting better we have hiccups we have moments where like coronavirus where <laughs> um, things aren't great I just had to cancel my um, summer vacation actually I did that last month but still that's not good not happy about that but look you know um, uh, Things things will get better and we will recover from this. And so I actually tell this story oftentimes when I'm giving a speech. I talk um, – I often talk to women's groups about how life is getting better. Innovation is great. We need to celebrate – modernity and and um, and and some of the scientific discoveries that have led to a better world a better situation for the for humans like these are things to celebrate and so I often tell this story about a woman named Sarah Josephine Baker she was a she was really ahead of her time she was a medical doctor in in the 1900 in, in the turn of the century um, and she practiced in New York City and in 1900 New York City, the government, the city government hired her to do a sort of assessment, a health assessment of the Hell's Kitchen section of New York. Now, if you're familiar with New York City um, and the different areas of New York City, Hell's Kitchen is a it's a it's a great n- neighborhood. It's close to Broadway. It, um, my favorite ramen restaurant is in, uh, is uh, in Hell's Kitchen. Um, and they have these really charming sort of um brownstone kind of apartment buildings and they're very expensive obviously now to rent a room or a a, an apartment in one of these buildings but at the turn of the uh, 20th century um so around 1900 this was tenement housing tons of people stuffed into very small spaces um and you know we're talking (laughs) again i want to be clear this is 1900 this is you know this 120 years ago it, that is very recent history. Um, hell's kitchen at that point it was the, the people, there were a lot of diseases, terrible sanitation, um, not a real good, you know, not, no understanding of germ therapy. Um, so there were a lot of, there's a lot of disease, um, and uh, again, poverty. So she did this census, she did this, uh, this assessment of the health conditions in hell's kitchen. And she found, she, she, you know, she created a report, but the, the, The data point that always gets me is that she found that 1,500 babies, and these are newborns, you know, before three months, were dying per week in that small section of New York. So we're talking 1,500 babies, these are very small babies, um, zero to three months were dying per week. So that is inconceivable today. We can I can't wrap my head around that. And because things have, you know, obviously, uh, you know, infant mortality, you know, it's, it's a lot better now. Babies don't die in those numbers, but they did then. And again, this was only 120 years ago. And I always tell that story because I think it really shocks people. Um, and it, and to, to, and it's also important to know that in 120 years, look where we've come. Look at the progress in medicine, in infant welfare, in preventative medicines, in pr- pregnancy care for women, um, and also the development of a social network or a, se- a social safety net that really helps those who live in, in, in dire poverty not have to to deal with the tragedy of of losing a baby, which was apparently quite common 120 years ago, at least in New York City. So anyway, um, I don't mean for that to be, um, that ending to be sort of ending on a sour note, it's just to serve as a reminder that the world and life is getting better, we are marching forward, we are doing well. And coronavirus will end, and and we will uh, regain some semblance of normalcy. Thanks everyone for being here for another episode of the Bespoke Parenting Hour. If you enjoyed this episode or like the podcast in general, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. This helps ensure that the podcast reaches as many listeners as possible. If you haven't subscribed to the Bespoke Parenting Hour on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts, please do so so you won't miss an episode. Don't forget to share this episode and let your friends know that they can get bespoke episodes on their favorite podcast app. From all of us here at the Independent Women's Forum, thanks for listening.